What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Dish Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all of support and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform. And make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Dish Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. This is Deep Dish, right? Yeah, well, let's get deep. So, so I'm, I'm going deep on both sides. Um, Martisha, welcome to the platform. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Uh, now, thank you for being here. Um, I got to give you your flowers while you're here. A whole bouquet of them, <laughs> you know. Um, congratulations on um, your second term of being thank elected you. as well. Uh, for people who may not know, um, not only are you the only the second woman to ever be elected, but you're also the first ever African-American woman, which is um, a huge thing, so congratulations as well on that. Thank you. Black excellence, black women excellence, black girl magic, all of those things. That's what you are. That's what you represent. And the, um, and so um, when other little black girls grow up, you know, they could they could see you and, and they know they can do it too, which I think is, is, is crucial and important. So bouquet of flowers, there you go. I'm giving them to them. Y'all can't see it, but y'all can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. No, um, no, um, and you're welcome, and, and well deserved and earned, I'm sure. Um, and I want to get into that. Being a Nashville native, um, where did that initial spark for you start, where you wanted to get involved in the criminal legal system? You know, I can't say that I always, my whole life, wanted to be a lawyer and and wanted to fight this fight because I really didn't know what mm -hmm. I wanted to do. I've always been very curious about news, very curious about you know current events, but I thought my path was gonna be journalism. I wanted to be an investigative journalist, uh, partially because I'm nosy. I wanted to <laughs> get to the bottom of things and be on the news. And when I was at Tennessee State, I had a professor, legendary lawyer here in Nashville by the name of Julian Blackshear, who you know paved his own way had gone to UT Knoxville, was involved in, in a lot of, of great struggles to help pave the way for me. And I had his intro to pre-law class. That was the first class I had with him. And he just was very inspirational, but not only that, sort of pushed me to think about the possibility of going to law school. I didn't ever think that really law school was attainable. It wasn't even on my radar. I didn't know any lawyers growing up. I didn't have a lot of legal influence. And so it wasn't that I didn't think I could do it. I just never saw that as a, a possibility. And so while I was at Tennessee State, I started to think about law school. Um, I enrolled in what's called the Tennessee Institute for Pre-Law at University of Memphis. And that gave me sort of a idea of what law school would be like. And then I just said, you know what? I can be nosy and be a journalist and I'm really interested in criminal law anyway and so I can see let's just see if I get into law school I applied to the University of Tennessee Knoxville and was accepted and so it was not even my first year of law school that made me decide that I wanted to do criminal law because at that point all I saw was what was on TV mm -hmm. and I couldn't see myself every day just sort of burying into you know, sending people to jail or, or the thing, that wasn't interesting to me. And I had an internship here in Nashville at the Nashville Public Defender's Office after my second year of law school. And 
that experience was transformational. It just, I found my people. Like mm. the first day I was there, I went to court. I saw people fighting hard for folks who looked like me. You know, this is my city. I just found that this was the best path for me. I, I could never see myself, you know, doing prosecution, but I didn't know all of the options. I didn't know that public defense was even an option for me until that internship. And from that point on, that was 2007. From that moment on, I have been committed to being a public defender. I've been committed to doing, you know, justice from this side. Mm -hmm. um, from the defense perspective, I think this is the biggest fight of our life. Um, and I'm happy to be able to do it and have been doing it now for almost 14 years. So. Wow. You almost two decades in. Oh, well, you know. Almost, <laughs> almost, almost 20. You it's almost, almost it's 20. Almost 20, you know. Almost 20. If we 20. count all of my experiences, then yes. And it doesn't seem like it's been that long, so mm -hmm. that would be a good thing. And so did you have any idea before you did the internship of what happens with public defenders, what public defenders did, or have any type of perception of public defenders in general? Generally speaking, no. Hmm. I did not know all of the things that public defenders did. Of course, I knew that in law you had the prosecution and you had the defense, right. but I was not aware of all of the great work of public defenders across the world. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't until I committed myself to doing this work that I started to hear the perceptions, the stereotypes of public pretenders mm -hmm. and, you know, public defenders don't work for their clients. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I invested in doing this work that I learned about the real resource disparities that exist in public defender offices and prosecutor offices. And, you know, that perception is largely based on the fact that we just aren't well resourced right. to do the work, the important work that we have to do. But I didn't know any of that until I really started doing the work. And so I must say this, I got to put this out there. And so I've have interviewed, I don't know, I feel like a thousand judges and, and now judges in, in still or attorneys that was uh, running for judges. Mm -hmm. And they all said, they all had a common theme about the Nashville Public Defender's Office and how y'all do just such a great job. Because it is those perceptions of public pretenders and things. But one thing they all stood on is that the great job that you all do at the Public Defender's Office. So I have to let you know that as what I've heard echoed over and over and over and over again by the judges that sit in those seats and the attorneys that have to enter those courtrooms. And so I thought you should just know that. Well, that's um, good to hear. I mean, yeah. they, they make me work really hard. They make <laughs> the lawyers in Nashville, the public defender's office work really hard, but we go in every day ready for that fight. Mm -hmm. um, we are so committed. I'm blessed to have a staff of over 100 people in my office that wake up every day and come and do this work. It's thankless at times. Mm -hmm. It is incredibly difficult at times because society, you know, easily casts aside somebody that has been charged with a crime. It's mm -hmm. easy to say, you know, that's a criminal. That right. person did something bad. Who cares what their story is? And it's right. our job to really try and make sure people see our clients for the human beings that they are. Mm -hmm. And it's also our job to sometimes fight back against the, the powers of the courts, the powers of law enforcement, and we get to do that. And that's, that's really difficult work, but I'm happy to hear that, you know, the 
other partners in the criminal legal system speak highly of our office because we take this very seriously and we go in to do a good job every day. And so I want to get into two two words, um, justice and power, right? And so um, I want you to break down to us what does justice mean to you? Um, and that's a loaded word. Very much so. Because I think, but I think it's good though, especially with somebody that's in your seat, for us to know what justice means to our chief public defender, um, because it can mean different things to different people. Um, and so I would like for you to just tell us what that means, what that word means to you, and what it entails, and then the same for power, because you are in a very powerful position. But power can be looked at in two different ways as well. And if not used correctly, especially for community, you know, um, it can be abuse of power. Um, And so if you can start with justice. Sure. Um, You're right that justice is a loaded question. And I can't center my definition of justice just in the criminal legal system Mm -hmm. because all of our systems, in my opinion, are connected. And so for me, really, justice has become the fight against inequality for me. Mm. That is the definition of justice. And in so many of our systems, in so many of the places that my clients have been in their lives, there exists this large inequity, is this large disparity in resources. And so we in this country have allowed, you know, the poverty wealth gap to widen and therefore we have also allowed the inequality that exists to widen. And so we cannot be a just community if we have people who are suffering financially, who are suffering because laws affect them more harshly than others. And in the criminal legal sphere, we can't have justice if we don't, we are not willing to make sure that every single person that comes inside of the courthouse has the same experience. And we know that doesn't happen. Right. We know even here in Nashville, um, there are disparities that exist that, that tell us something about our legal system. We arrest more than 50% of black people in this city, yet we only make up about 28% of the population. We incarcerate more than 60% of the people, um, black people in this city. Our jails are filled with more than 60% of black people, yet we only make up 28% of this population. We know for a fact that there is a wealth difference in what type of justice you get at the legal system. If you're poor, quite often you find yourself incarcerated. You have harsher penalties. Um, The experience itself is much more difficult and it is much easier for folks to not see my clients as human beings. Mm -hmm. So we can't have justice um, without a focus on eliminating the the inequalities that exist, the injustices that exist. And so I wanna, before we get into power, um, I wanna go ahead and ask you this question then. How do we, I guess, do we ever live in a world or a criminal legal system where we eliminate that uh, wave-based disparities uh, in our criminal legal system that you know and that that is you know related to bail, um, but disproportionately affect black people, brown people, and poor folks? Absolutely. You know, 14 years ago, I was full of hope and starry-eyed about the possibilities of the legal system. And I I thought that absolutely one day we would eliminate wealth-based disparities in our legal system. This struggle has been the hardest one of my career Mm. because 
no matter what the data says, no matter what the you know the dialogue is, no matter what real life people say their experiences are in the legal system, we have not done enough to eliminate wealth-based disparities. In fact, we are starting to see trends that look like the law and order days of the world and which led us to mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I, I remain hopeful <clears throat> that with the right people in place, with the right folks fighting the fight, that we can eliminate the wealth-based disparities that exist, but the fight is still the biggest fight of our lives. Right. We have made progress, but we are nowhere near the finish line in that. Mm. And that's kind of crazy that you can have all this data, all these stats, all these facts that point out to everybody that there's a group of people that are black and brown and poor that are just disproportionately affected by the way the system is currently acting and behaving and nothing is being done about it. And that's because we also see right now that our incarceration numbers in Nashville are down. That the number of people who are moving through the legal system now is less than it was 10 years ago. And so people want to celebrate that fact. We celebrate the fact that our jails are not overcrowded. That is something we should celebrate mm -hmm. in a way. Um, we should be looking at the reasons why our incarceration numbers are down, arrests are down, and try and keep them that way. Mm -hmm. But we can't just let that be the the star that we focus on when really we still have these I mean, in in the past 10 years mm -hmm. even though we see those incarceration numbers dropping we still see the same number percentage numbers of folks who make up the jails oh, the demographic the yeah. same demographic of people who are arrested and so yeah. yes we've done some reducing of things but we have not done any elimination of the disparities right so basically it sounds like <laughs> It had to be zero arrests for disparities to go away. <laughs> you know, I always tell people if if I could be put out of business, I am all about that. So if we could mm. get to a place where that is a possibility, that where mm -hmm. arrest and incarceration is not the answer to everything, mm -hmm. that would be a good day for this country. I just don't know when that happens. And we're gonna get into that. I want to. I want to get into some of that restorative justice stuff. Um, because it's, it's been it's, it's been a hot word um, as of late about restorative justice, and, and I and I really question if America really wants to take that approach or really will to take that approach um, in our criminal legal system. But I want to pivot back to power mm -hmm. um, because you 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 hold a lot of power. Do I? Uh, I think you do. <laughs> now, <laughs> now. Now, we get into resources as well. <laughs> Limited power, but you have power, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially for those black and brown and poor folks that can't afford representation on their own because of their financial well-being or lack thereof. Um, and so I think, you, I think you do hold a lot of power because you have to be intentional and diligent about who your staff is, how they're representing clients and then doing it to the um, utmost potential of what you all have available to you. So I think that is power because you could not care, you know, <laughs> and then like that could, that cannot be good for a lot of community members. Um, and so when you think of power, what does that mean to, to you and um, your role and in the criminal legal system? 
you know, I, I agree to to a degree. Mm-hmm. I am blessed to have the power to be in the spaces where policy decisions are being made. I joke all the time that I get to be the thorn in the side of Glenn Funk and the Nashville judges. And so with that, I respect that with the power that I have as the chief public defender becomes a great responsibility for me to make sure that I am doing what I said I would do. I mean, I stood before all the people who were at my swearing in four years ago and told them that you will hear from me about issues of injustice. Mm -hmm. And so I've spent now my entire first term doing that, fighting about bail. You know, a large part of that was fighting about treatment of people during the pandemic and how we handled that as a legal system. You know, writing uh, statements about injustices that come up in our city and, and speaking to the community and to the council members and to all of these folks that that when I can speak my voice, hopefully they hear it and they use that when they're thinking about the changes that are made. Um, so I respect that I have the power in my position, mm-hmm. the power of my voice. Um, I still think that the power balance is greatly swayed in the direction of law enforcement. Okay. We often defer to what the law enforcement officials, the prosecutor, what they want to do um, because they have more power. Mm-hmm. And the resource power is real. Like right. Their budget greatly exceeds my budget. When we are building a criminal case for someone who has been charged with a crime, you begin to see just really how much the odds are stacked against our clients. Mm -hmm. The prosecutor has the entire arm of the state behind them. They have the cooperation of the police department. They have more staff members, more resources to bring a case to prosecution or to start the prosecution. And oftentimes when it's time for me to prepare a defense of somebody, I start that process with a sheet of paper that is an arrest warrant that tells me what the officer's basic summary is about a case. And then I have to work with the limited resources available to the defense office to try and build a defense, Mm. to try and, you know, get people to ensure their freedom in many Mm. cases, to fight against their constitutional rights when many times all we have is a brick wall in front of us. We don't have the cooperation of law enforcement. And so that part of the power is a limited limited piece. The, mm-hmm. the power dynamic there is greatly swayed to the prosecution and law enforcement. And so um, there's a lot of folks that can't afford attorneys, right? And you all, unfortunately, because of lack of resources, can't represent all of those folks. Correct. Um, and then, you know, a judge has to, you know, maybe appoint an attorney. Um, because you all, you know, can't represent everyone, um, what challenges do you see because of lack of resources? Um, probably is the most challenging thing when, you know, is it turning somebody away because he's like, Hey, we just don't have the bandwidth right now. Um, is it, is it, is it saying, Hey, I know if I had just a little more resources, I could, you know, this case would have maybe had a different outcome. Um, what are those challenges due to lack of resources, knowing that, you know, it's just limited capacity and who you all can represent? You know, the biggest challenge related to resources has to do with workload. And it is unfortunate that as the public defender who has committed myself to the representation of people who can't afford a lawyer, 
when I don't have the appropriate resources, I do have to talk about workload controls. I have mm -hmm. to talk about the capacity of our office and what we can take because we can't just take everyone because we would provide no one great representation. Our office is committed to a standard of excellence. Now that doesn't mean we can achieve it always because right. of resources, right. but that's what we're committed to. Right. We cannot at all provide even great representation to clients if we're triaging them. Right. And that's what we would be doing if we were representing every single person that came through the system. Mm -hmm. And so I often, you know, when I am asking the city for more resources, that's really what I'm saying. I'm saying you have information that shows you that when the public defender is on the case, we are providing people with excellent representation. Mm -hmm. We are able to achieve outcomes. We are committed to this fight. And so you should resource us appropriately so we could take more cases. But when we don't have those resources, the biggest challenge is we do turn cases away. We do sometimes say we cannot represent a particular case because of our workload. And then the challenges that are associated with you know some of the struggles that the appointed bar has to deal with which is resources as well mm -hmm. they don't get paid a whole lot of money per hour to take these cases mm -hmm. they may not have investigators legal assistants mm -hmm. paralegals to help them build these cases they certainly may not have the resources of a client advocate or social worker like what i have mm -hmm. and so you're talking about a resource disparity that then exists amongst public defender versus appointed counsel, and the person that's mostly affected is that poor client right. who is just hopeful to get somebody who can give them the best representation that they can. Right. What does uh, the public defender's office look like with the adequate resources um, that's needed to, to, to do the work? What what is that? What does that look like? How much money is that? Uh, <laughs> um, can you break that down for us? I'm pretty sure like you got a wish list. <laughs> you know, I do have a wish list. I mean, if I we've actually been doing this sort of analysis right now. The pandemic was hard on everyone, mm -hmm. but particularly hard on the public defender's office, criminal defense bar, because a lot of our cases, particularly those set for trial just sort of stopped. Mm -hmm. Trials were canceled, and so for two years, you had people who could not have a trial in their case. Right. Now the courts are opened again, and we have trials set. And so you have my lawyers who have trials that they have to have, um, you know, every month they're in trial, plus their full caseloads. Mm -hmm. And we do have some public defender workload studies that have been done. Most of them are dated. But even if we look at those numbers, numbers from the Tennessee workload standard of the 90s, we currently have too many serious felonies in my office. Mm -hmm. All of my criminal court lawyers are taking on, by numerical standard, too many murders, mm -hmm. too many of the serious cases. And so we're taking those cases right now. And... It just means that we're preparing for one trial after the next, and right. then the cases are still coming in. So really, I can't tell you what the number looks like, right. but I can tell you that if I was able to have more lawyers, more investigators, more client advocates, we could take on more people and really be able to focus on providing a holistic form of defense for our clients, mm -hmm. which would not only represent them in their case, 
but be able to provide aftercare services related to expungements and reentry. And, you know, we could get to, I can't even get to the wish list of things that I have <laughs> for us to do because right now we're just trying to make sure we stay afloat right. with the cases that we have. And we also have experienced like all of the other public defender offices in the country and other legal agencies and employers generally, we are experiencing that sort of what we call it, the, the great resignation, the great retirement, where people are deciding now after the pandemic, you know, I'd rather live closer to my family members. Mm -hmm. I It's a good time for me to retire, you know. So we have to focus on the holes that we have in the office, filling those as well, mm -hmm. and making sure that we can keep our doors open every day. Um, and we've also experienced challenges with COVID. You know, right. working in on the front lines has exposed us several times to to COVID. And right. so, I would give me all the resources <laughs> that you give the prosecutor's office to start. Right. And we can go from there. And so, with those resources, is that who? What does that start? Does that start at the mayor's? Like, is it is that where that starts? It's like, hey, mayor, this is what we need. And he decides, like, okay, we'll take a look at it. Or is that mayor, then council, and then back to mayor? It's actually state Sa and oh, mayor. Oh, state and mayor, okay. The, the city of Nashville has shown their commitment to public defense because they give us the majority of our budget. Okay. So the majority of the Nashville Public Defender's Office budget comes from the city. Okay. In every city budget every year, there is an allocation made to our office, and that allocation is more than 80% of my budget. Okay. The other 20 or so percent comes from the state. Okay. And I would say the state could afford to give public defenders more money in this, in this situation. Um, but, yeah, the process is currently each of those entities, the state and the city, have a budget cycle where you make budget requests. Mm -hmm. My state... Um, money is, is allocated by a law. The law says how much I get from the state. Okay. Um, the city is a little different. I am sort of breaking down each year what my need is, mm -hmm. and then they analyze it and either give me what I'm asking for or tweak it in some ways to give me something. Okay. I want to go back to this public pretender, this okay. word, this perception. Um and it, it's it's kind of weird because when you watch media propaganda, they don't never show public uh, defenders in the best light. Nope. You know, you always hear about um, all the negative stories, the negative narratives around public uh, defenders, and just they don't they don't never represent folks right. They you know they don't care and all these things, which probably can turn inspiring attorneys away from probably wanting to practice as a public defender and they also get into oh they don't make a lot of money and all these things um and so expectations can be kind of falsely set you know um and narratives can be falsely set and presented especially if you don't do an internship and really know and you're just looking from the outside in um how have you tried to community engagement around community education around what you all do because there's i think more negative stories and narratives that's put out there than positive ones and let me iterate reiterate this every attorney and in, in, in elected uh judge candidate came on here and said we do a great job here in nashville um because i think they too understand the perceptions and narratives that are put out there 
but um does your office or yourself personally do that kind of community education so people can really understand um fully transparency which you all do but also fully understand like this is what we can do with the resources that we have absolutely i mean and we also as public defenders have to acknowledge that historically there is some truth to uh, the perceptions that created the idea of a public pretender. Mm -hmm. The the pictures that we see in the media um, are apparent of, we have had a history of taking every single case we can take mm -hmm. and just doing the best we can. And so what you get is an assembly line approach to justice or triaging cases rather than really being able to be invested in our clients. And so first I would say with that acknowledgement, and this started before me as right. the public defender, my predecessor, uh, Don Diener, was even invested in changing the perception and narrative around that for our office. Mm -hmm. And so we do, we focus on making sure we hire people who are not only committed to this cause, like. I'm not looking for lawyers who tell me I want to get trial experience. You'll get trial experience in the public defender's office. But I'm looking for people who are committed to the fight of public defense, understanding mm -hmm. that that is brutal sometimes, right. understanding that it means you lose a lot of times. But I want folks who want to know who our clients are, want to understand their backgrounds, their needs, their families, and that we try and build that trust from day one. When I was able to you know, have my own caseload, that would be my focus. From day one, I want my clients to see me fighting, to see me trying to learn about who they are and what their desires are, and showing up to show them that I am committed to this case. It doesn't mean that we're going to get the, the outcome all the time. Right. But what I want them to know is every single day I'm doing this, I'm doing it because I'm invested in it. And so that has been... Um, a narrative that we have been working to change, and I think we do a good job with that. And I have heard and see my, my attorneys all the time. You know, we also have a community arm of our office. It's called the Defend Nashville Initiative. It sort of was d dormant for a little while with the pandemic, but we have revamped it. We started a newsletter that highlights what we do. Um, we also do community-based engagement where we're doing Know Your Rights. We're partnering with agencies like Turk. We're trying to get a partnership together with Open Table, where we are, you know, really trying to partner with community-based organizations to provide education and to also listen and get feedback about what we do and how we do it because that's important to us. And so that that community engagement, systemic advocacy piece is one of our core values. Mm. So that is just built in the framework of our office, and we are invested in that as, as much so as we are the day-to-day -day representation. Yeah, and I, and I just think that's, like, super important for people to know and super even more important for you to articulate and communicate that because, again, it just, you know, I don't know. I guess we just love to hear more negative than positive in this country, in this society. So I wanted to make sure I gave you an opportunity to really to break that down. And again, I'm going to keep echoing this. People who have watched this, the judges and attorneys that came on, they have gave nothing but praises to the National Public Defender's Office. And so um, congratulations. Keep doing the good work. <laughs> We try to do what we can. I and tell the people, whole team. you know, we're not miracle workers, but right. we certainly uh, fight very hard in our office. And so um, I want to kind of get, get pivot a little bit back to, your, to the power, but more so your voice when it comes to power, um, when it comes to policy as well. Um, 
there's no there's no hiding this there's no getting around this that there has been um structural racist policy in place in this country that criminalizes at a disproportionate rate we know black men black folks just anti-black laws when it comes to our criminal legal system which leads to some of the stats that you pointed out of us just being incarcerated more here in nashville and just nationwide um what place does your voice or what impact i would say does your voice have on addressing those policies um at a state level um and trying to get some of those policies that we know are just rooted in this discrimination and, and it just targeted a particular group of folks, whether that's from bail or whether that's just from uh, drug laws, um, just targeted a particular group of folks. How did your voice play a role in, in calling that out um, and trying to get new policy in place and, 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 and old policy out of there because we know it's harmful to community? I mean, again, I think that is my responsibility. I have to be the voice of how laws impact real people. And real people, I mean, are my clients. I have to uncomfortably sometimes be the person to talk about race, mm -hmm. to talk about injustice. And quite frankly, sometimes it's very difficult to do so because, you know, you have this sort of... I have... I am greatly impacted by black people being affected in the criminal legal system as a black woman. Mm -hmm. I feel that impact differently than my white colleagues, mm -hmm. right? And so sometimes I have to I have to think about my approach to using my voice because using my voice means also exposing my vulnerability and my emotions of how I'm really feeling. Mm. And that is a difficult place to be in. It's difficult to be sometimes the black voice speaking up for black people when you like, don't y'all see the statistics? Right. I shouldn't be the only person talking about how disproportionately what we are doing policy-wise affects black people in Nashville. Mm -hmm. But that is my responsibility, and so mm -hmm. I do it. I mostly do that in the form of dealing with our local policymakers, local leaders. Okay. So directly with the judges, you know, powwowing on the regular with the DA, um, speaking to city council members, for instance, I was involved in the discussions related to license plate readers and mm -hmm. how I thought that form of surveillance was going to impact people of color mm -hmm. greatly, um, add another layer of, of criminal criminalization and targeting. Mm -hmm. And so I speak up about those things more so on the local level. Mm -hmm. In terms of the state, we have what's called a public defender conference, which mm -hmm. means that there is a executive director, a leader of our public defender conference, who is kind of like our lobbyist. Mm -hmm. He is the one that prepares our state budget and takes public defender issues to the legislators. Um, and he convenes the group of us, all of the public defenders across the state of Tennessee. And we talk about laws that are being made issues that are, are happening across the state mm -hmm. and we come up with the best approaches to that and then he becomes our sort of voice on Capitol Hill about right. public defender issues. Now I do regularly um, communicate and have communicated in the past with our lawmakers on the, on the state level about issues but 
where I spend most of my time fighting is with local policy, local things, because that is the day-to-day what I'm dealing with. Relationships um, are very important in your role, right? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> right? Um, and so there's, I think that there's two relationships I'm curious about and how that works with, with your job, right? I think the obvious one is uh, Police Chief Drake. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the second one would be probably Mayor Cooper. Um, and then, uh, granted, like the judges, like General Sessions and, and the DA, I think, are relationships too. But those two, Mayor Cooper and Chief Drake, um, can you break down to us uh, what their relationship looks like from a criminal legal system and trying to combat some of these things that happen here in Nashville? And probably more so with Chief Drake um, because he is the chief of police here in Nashville. Um, and, you know, when you throw those stats out of him, <laughs> I bet it hit a little different. And, again, him being a black man as well, he has to feel it, you know, um, on some type of level. Um, and so um, can you break down those dynamics of the relationship? You know, I think certainly Chief Drake understands the issues in this city. Um, I was very it was a positive thing to me to know that he was from Nashville, mm-hmm. that the communities that he has grown up in and, and served were ones that, you know, I see on a regular as my clients coming from. Mm-hmm. So those things were positives to me. I think, you know, when he became the chief, he and I were able to sit down and have a conversation where at least we were able to say, you know, all of our conversations don't have to be adversary you know I come to this work with a role you have a role to play I think we can respect each other's roles and still try and do what we can to provide justice and now I do think that justice looks a little differently from my approach and his approach we have different leanings we have different thoughts Um, I am going to be very much so moving towards you know we have learned that incarceration has not been the answer. It has not produced a a more safe community. It has not done anything to deter crime. It does not rehabilitate. And so we know that we need to do something different. What I find the approach being is we do some things different, but if they involve guns or they involve an allegation of serious violence, we can be unwilling to look at things differently. Mm-hmm. And so we we have a relationship. Mm-hmm. I think our roles are very different. And so I don't have, as I would say, my personal um, people that I have the most relationship with in this system are probably DA Funk. Okay. And I do to some degree with the mayor because I have to, you know, get to him sometimes through council members or directly to him through committees that I'm on. I have been asked to talk about things and give information to the vice mayor. Um, And so that relationship is important as well. But where I think I have the most, I guess you could say it's a good relationship, but it's also where I have the biggest fight sometimes is Mm -hmm. with DA Funk. And I think he then is able to use, if he chooses, the information that the fight that we have, the information mm-hmm. that I give to take into those law enforcement circles that I'm not invited to. Mm. I'm not regularly in attendance at those meetings, right. those policy decisions that they're making. And so he is, though. Okay. And so I make sure that I am fighting with him about those things 
and when the council is taking up an issue that has to do with the criminal legal system that my voice is heard there and so that that kind of filters to those other uh, members of power in the right. community. I also have a great working relationship, which is kind of unusual, but with Sheriff Hall okay. um, in Nashville as well. Okay. And we find ourselves, we found ourselves to be allies on, you know, trying to de-densify the jails during the pandemic. Both of us were asking to release people from jail. And mm -hmm. so... You know, it's not often that you find a sheriff and a public defender right. asking for the same things, but we find ourselves sometimes to be asking for the same things, same issues. He is an ally on bail concerns as well. So I, those are the relationships. And then the judges, right. um, those are the ones that I spend most of my time with daily. I found it kind of like ironic and perplexing at the same time that, you know, it kind of took a pandemic to for a lot of our, uh, for our criminal legal system realize, like, maybe, you know, certain offenses, you know, we don't have to, you know, incarcerate, you know, serious violent crimes, we understand, but some of these other ones, driving on suspended license and things like that, maybe, you know, we don't have to put everybody away. Um, with that, have you seen a change in our courts and in our jail um, as far as those kind of lesser offenses, you know, allowing folks to go back home, go to work, go be parents uh, again, or is it is it kind of turning back around and ticking to, to, to where we were before? So that's going to be interesting. Th that's what I'm paying attention to right now to okay. see whether or not we see things kind of creeping back to where they were. Um, our day-to-day -day incarceration numbers, our daily population numbers are starting to look a little bit like they did before the pandemic. Now, that does not mean that our jails are crowded because right. we still are under in terms of numbers. Um, we do see more people who are being released on bond or pretrial still happening. Okay. But what I will be paying attention to over the next few months is to see whether those numbers, we do see arrest numbers starting to creep up again. Mm -hmm. um, our, like I said, daily population looking similar to it did pre-pandemic and so just watching those docket numbers to see if those cases where people are arrested for trespassing and and small minor offenses if they are still staying low or we start to see that creeping up and and that is something that is concerning to me i know there are a lot of initiatives particularly in downtown nashville where you have the business owners there saying hey clean up broadway you know, my tourists are needing to have an experience when they come here. And so get these people experiencing homelessness off the streets. And right. so that is something I'm paying attention to. I do think that in the years, months, days to come, we will see some efforts to clean up Broadway that are going to be frustrating to me personally mm -hmm. because we are not also sending better resources for people who are experiencing homelessness to right. have places to live right. or places to go. Right. Well, um, <clears throat> let's, 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 let's talk a little bit about that um, and how we could prevent people from having to go to jail. And so after, after doing talking to a lot of attorneys and judges, right, a lot of them said kind of like yourself in the beginning, like, hey, if I can put myself out of a job, that'd be great. Um, because what people are realizing, once they once they come to you or once they go to a court, it's, 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 it's kind of it's too late. Things have already happened. And depending on which court you go to, is you know, ain't, ain't too many people that can save you. Um, but if there are resources on the front end that prevent a, a, a person 
a child from having to commit certain acts in order to fulfill a need he or she feels like they are void of, then that's where we start to probably see people not having to end up in court more. Um, what y'all already limited resources <laughs> in general, but what role could the public defender's office play in that or already does in order to try to prevent people from ending up having to use you all services in general? You know, this is something that we advocate for all the time in most of the committees that I sit on, most of the policy making groups that are looking at um, homelessness, that are looking at substance abuse, that are looking at, you know, just all the things, affordability, mm -hmm. my comments are going to be the same. And that is, if you appropriately resource on the front end, mm -hmm. then that is the best way to prevent people from coming through the system. You have to adequately resource education. We should not have disparities in our education for poor black, poor brown children in Nashville, but we do. We know that in certain communities, all of the schools in those neighborhoods are priority schools. We know that if you go into the more affluent areas of town, those schools have great resources. They have PTOs that can raise a large amount of capital in a short amount of time. Those things contribute to what happens at the end. Mm -hmm. When you have children who have adverse child experiences related to their poverty, you can't help but expect to see them, unfortunately, in the criminal legal system. Mm -hmm. So helping people with education equality, helping people in terms of affordability, this city has to decide what type of Nashville it wants to be. Do we want to be a Nashville where folks like me who are natives here, mm -hmm. our families can't live here anymore? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you see more communities being pushed out of their native communities than we see being welcomed in. Mm -hmm. Those are going to be real problems. Affordability is a real problem. Right. If I don't feel like I have a piece of this society, that I can contribute to the society, that I have any hope for a better future, then that hopelessness, that feeling that I don't belong, all bakes into this pie, if you will, of later on having encounters with the criminal legal system. Mm -hmm. We know that. Right. We know that to punish people who are experiencing homelessness without giving them a resource of a place to live is ridiculous. Right. And so preventive resources, funding appropriately things on the front end, that is certainly something that I advocate for all the time. Right. That is where you need to spend your money. All of these diversion programs are good. It is good to give people options in the legal system, but we need to be giving people options on the front end to appropriately address their substance abuse issues, their mental illness, and giving kids an opportunity to have other pathways than ones that lead them to the carceral system. Now, that's on the front end. Some people do get arrested. Some people do go to jail or in or prison. Um, so there's a re-entry into society um, that, you know, we're not really so great at um, on returning because I think 90 percent of folks come back home, return back to their communities. Um, and, you know, um, we don't do a really good job of welcoming them back with resources and really second chances 
uh, wanting to be successful. Um, what are your thoughts on how do we dismantle these barriers when somebody is incarcerated and come back home and needs a job, needs affordable housing, but just housing in general, um, needing things that will help them acclimate and be successful um, after reentry so they can be a successful community member? I mean, reentry barriers, I believe, start with a mental state. We have to stop as a community giving people the scarlet letter of criminality for the rest of their life. You get arrested, you get charged with a criminal offense. Um, in a matter of days, you can lose everything that you have. Mm -hmm. If you are convicted of that offense, sometimes even if you're not convicted, that stain of your encounter with the legal system stays with you for the rest of your life. And so we can't ever really say we're interested in reentry and restoration if we won't change that concept. Right. The barriers are, I have to, when I'm applying for an apartment, I have to tell what my criminal background is. Mm -hmm. I understand that people believe that knowing whether their neighbor has ever been in trouble is, is something that makes them feel safe, but I disagree there. That is not what makes our community safer getting loans and money and all of those things are sometimes impacted by someone's criminal history. Mm -hmm. Voting rights mm -hmm. are severely impacted by a person's criminal history. And so in order to eliminate the barriers, we have to first decide that one, you're right, the majority of people are going to come back to their communities. We should have a welcoming community that puts someone back as a member of their community, their society, as if they never left. Right. Now, it's going to be difficult to do that without helping, without um, elimination of the job disparities. So taking off, there was an effort to remove, you know, the ban on arrest on a, a employment application. So eliminating those barriers, giving people a fair chance. Mm -hmm. Let's just give somebody the fair chance of applying for a job, and if they were going to get the job, maybe give them a chance to do so. Right. We don't even get the chance to get the job if I have to put on the application that I was arrested, I was convicted, even if my conviction was several years ago. Right. Follows you for the rest of your life. I'm eliminated from voting. I'm eliminated from certain places to live. I'm eliminated from getting federal money in some ways. And so, again, Without the ability to acclimate to my community, to mm -hmm. feel like a productive member of my society, I am hopeless. And then that revolving door begins to start where people go back into the criminal legal system. You got to start, in my opinion, with our mental state. The mental state of our leaders and policymakers around how we view folks who have encounters with the legal system. Mm -hmm. And then let's be courageous and try something different. Let's eliminate all of these reentry barriers. Let's try to make it easy for somebody to get their driver's license, to find their birthing documents when they get out of custody, to be able to find a place to live and get a job and have a wraparound support system around them. Let's try that. Because what we've been doing isn't working. Right, and, and that's what this is, is appalling to me. It's like, why, 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 do we, why do we choose, why do we have systems to choose that make it, more difficult and we know it doesn't that's just it just it just and, and and that's what policy comes into play 
and it requires it, courageous it, leadership. It just, it just, it, it just baffles me. It really, it really baffles me. And I always said to myself, you know, because you know, a, as a person to have really close friends that have, a, you know, felonies on their record, and knowing them, and knowing they 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 committed them when they was teenagers, and knowing that you know they have to. They have to be in a particular line of employment because of that felony, unless they're going to be an entrepreneur. But everybody's an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. right? And so, and, and, and they have to navigate particular ways when doing housing applications. You know, maybe their name can't even be on the application, right? right? And so it's, it's. And then you risk your family if somebody finding out being evicted if they find out later. Right. And also, I didn't mention this, but I think the expansion of expungements is important as well. What things can be expunged from someone's record is important. I mean, should we really have certain offenses left on somebody's record for their entire life? I don't think no offense should be left on somebody's record for their entire life. Like, it should be an expiration, you know, expiring date. Like, you know, you haven't done nothing in 20 years. If we hope for them to be able to be productive members of the community again, that would be a step in the right direction. Right. Whew, we got a lot of work to do. I want to get into this restorative justice. Um, We talked about reentry. We talked about um, preventative measures for even people going into the court system and needing a public defender in general. But restorative justice is something um, that's been thrown around a lot lately from 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 my lens, um, and and this is how I understand it. And then I let you give us a master class on it. But I, <laughs> this is how I understand it, right? If I commit harm or offense to a community member, first I have to admit that I hurt a community member. I have to first commit, like yes. I, I did this 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 harm and have to take responsibility and accountability. Then the next step is the person that was harmed has to also be willing to engage in conversation in that restorative process and be able to ask me, Jerome, why why did you do this? You know, um, you know that you know you you stole my car. I couldn't t- t- take my kids to work. I had to miss work. I lost my job. Um, and we have to be willing in partnership for that restorative justice to work in order for me um, to get restorative justice, but I also have to be willing to find some way to make the person that harm whole again. Um, and that may, you know, look like some type of alternative to jail, uh, but it also maybe still could mean jail time, but maybe, you know, a lesser sentence. Uh, but that's how I understand restorative justice um, and really trying to get away from what many refer to as, you know, a, a punishment system um, here that we have. Yeah. So a restorative justice system would look like um, providing restoration to both parties, the party that has been harmed and also the party that has caused the harm. Um In my opinion, the best form of that is one that happens before someone has been convicted Mm. of a charge. Okay. Because it does provide the opportunity for a total restoration. Because that offense can be dismissed or expunged from their record on the front end without there being a conviction that has had to happen first. In Nashville, many of our restorative justice programs, and we don't have many, they start with 
the person who has been harmed has to decide that what they'd like to happen is to complete this restorative process versus the traditional pathway of justice. And what I understand the reason for that is many people on both sides, both people who are going through the criminal legal system as defendants and those who are going through it as you know folks who have been harmed report feeling dissatisfied when it's over. They don't have closure or they don't have an understanding or they didn't get the type of justice that they had hoped to accomplish or they still have lingering questions or concerns. And so to shift to a more restorative system allows an opportunity for the parties involved to sit down and have some sort of healing circles, if you will, to talk about the harm, to talk about the effects on both of the folks. And both people are coming to the table as an open person to openly hear, you know, maybe the background of this person who caused harm and why it led them there. Um, and to try and get an understanding there, but also for the responsible party to learn how this affected. And then throughout this process, figuring out things that can happen that can bring about uh, restoration to both parties and an outcome that feels like more justice than the traditional path. And most, most of the programs, and again, we don't have many. Right. I'm going to look to the juvenile program we have at this point, they don't result in criminal convictions and charges in the end. If a person completes this process, the charge is expunged and the two parties leave there um, feeling, hopefully feeling satisfied. And then we start to see this is a better approach to justice than what we have been doing. And that's difficult. Um, I think for many Americans to wrap their head around because I think we just ingrained and conditioned to punish and harm. You harm me, I want to make sure you get harmed too. Mm -hmm. um, if, you, if you hurt me, hurt my sibling, hurt, hurt a family member, I want you to do life, right? That's, that's what I think we've been accustomed to, to accepting and also wanting but that's not where restorative justice is. Nope, it's not. <laughs> um, and I want everybody that's watching and listening to this to really reflect on, you know, um, how you truly feel about just human beings and life. Because that's, I think that's the question we have to reflect on and knowing that I was harmed. I'm hurt. I'm mad. I'm angry. And I might not ever be really made whole, depending on what I've lost. Um but do I also want another community member to also suffer for an extended period of time or the remainder of their life because of what they did to me, which is a hard pill to swallow um, and what makes restorative justice really interesting to me. Um, and that's something I internally have been trying to, 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 to wrestle with because, you know, um, th there's levels to crime. Right. Mm -hmm. I might be OK. OK, you broke into my car. I, you know, I get it. You know, you're a teenager. I don't want, you know, I get it. But like, you know, you hurt my mama. You hurt my brother. Potentially even death or critical conditioning. Ah, how do I wrestle with that inside when broached about? Would you like to take a restorative justice approach? Oh, huh. <laughs> you know, and so. um, 
I, I would like to see more of it, especially in, the, in our adult courts. Mm -hmm. um, like you mentioned, no, we do it a lot on uh, the juvenile level here, but I don't think we have anything restorative for the adult courts here in Nashville yet. Um, I like to see it and also like to see how it goes and how community responds to it. You know, it, it's going to be a challenge. Like, even though I come at this from a defense perspective, I have not lost my morality. Mm -hmm. I understand that if someone has a, a very serious harm caused to them, there is a, a loss and a grief sometimes that is unimaginable. Right. And everybody is not going to say, I want to go through a restorative practice because right. they may not ever be able to be restored in that way. What I can say and what I hope that community members will understand is incarceration, incapacitation, those things we've done a whole lot of. They have not deterred, nor have they provided a more safe environment, nor have they provided restoration to people who have been harmed. It just hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. And so... We know that that hasn't happened. I'm asking, not only do I call on our leaders to be courageous, I ask folks who are coming through this system to be open-minded to possibilities that there are other options, alternatives to incarceration that just might provide a better form of justice. And that was my next question. What are some alternatives to incarceration um, that we should be considering um, as community and as part of our criminal legal system um, because you know there's you mentioned one of them homelessness that that is criminalized you know um, mental health um, addiction um, all these things um, can be criminalized and you can be you know put in jail in no prison for it so what are some community-based alternatives so they all require resources right? right so we circle back to this resource <laughs> thing but giving people the services that they need to support their issues is a much better outcome. If I am severely mentally ill and I have never had the appropriate form of treatment for that, I never, I don't have insurance, I can't afford private medical costs, I don't have a place I can go live, it, I can either continue this cycle of put that severely mentally ill person in jail on a cycle basis, and what's gonna happen? They're gonna get out, their mental illness is gonna be the same or worsened, and there's nothing that changes about that person at all. Mm -hmm. Or the money that I spend trying to incarcerate them, I figure out how to best give them resources to find programming that provides mental health support, whether it be medication, whether it be counseling, whether it be a place to stay, all of those things. That is a better system for that person. Right now, our mental health services are way under-resourced in Nashville. We do have the Davidson County Behavioral Care Center um, that was started by the sheriff that gives people a, a sort of transitional mental health approach Rather than them going into the traditional jail, they can go to that facility and get some sort of initial services provided to them that hopefully help them with wraparound support when they are released. But enhancing our mental health resources is important. There also aren't a lot of places that 
if you don't have insurance and resources you can go to for substance abuse. Mm -hmm. So creating, I think, more community-based alternatives with resources that will address mental illness, that will address substance abuse, and will provide people a place to live are going to be your better alternatives to incarceration. And while I have a whole team of client advocates in my office that put together release planning for us and look for mitigation and places for folks to go, there's never enough. There mm -hmm. are never enough places for people to go. And when we don't have a place for folks to go, then the jail becomes the hospital mm -hmm. for everything or the housing facility for everything. And I want to, on top of that, I, I, this is how I feel personally. When you talk about those resources that's needed, I think it needs to be community-led. Absolutely. And not a department of or a facet of policing because um, I think we, we have, what we have seen is um, we have seen monies and resources continue to go to police that should be going to other um, professional sectors that are experts in it. Absolutely. Um, such as mental health, uh, such as, you know, um, mental health is the big one, um, therapy. Uh, social services in general, um, you know, I think police should stick to policing and, and combating crime in that way. But I don't I don't think they should also, you know, be therapists and social service workers because I don't think that's what they signed up for. Um, and then they didn't, you know, go to school to do it. Uh, but, you know, we just have this infatuation, I think, with policing and feel like they're the answer to everything, which they, they're, they're not. <laughs> the policing is not the answer to everything. But again... If you don't know any alternative other measures, you know, maybe that's all you think, too. Like, oh, well, just police will handle it. Police will handle that. But there are other community-based alternatives, which you just named, that I think we need to do more investing in, for sure. We do. And there are many local community-based mm -hmm. organizations that are doing work to try and, and, and be on the front lines mm -hmm. of, you know, violence interruption right. and giving people alternatives to incarceration. And, you know, I think that the work Gideon's Army has done over the few past years has been an example to that. And, and it's unfortunate to see all of the attacks we've seen on Rashida and the program. Um, but, you know, they were really trying on the front end to get the appropriate resources right. to do this violence interruption right. work, to do these restorative-based circles and practices right. and all of that. And the, the powers that be were so reticent to give them those resources. Mm -hmm. And now we have still seen a need for resources for this type of thing in our city. And we do see some other agencies. I know the mayor's office recently launched a community safety position and they're looking to find programs to resource. But I agree with you. The right. answer to this issue is community-based alternatives to incarceration that are led by respected members right. of our communities. And, 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 and the mayor's office shouldn't have to look too far, you know, in my opinion. Like, we have uh, many organizations that do a lot of boots on the ground, everyday work, and, you know, kind of like the public defender's office, you know. The, the thing is the capacity and the resources that they have to do it at a larger scale to right. service, you know, the majority of Nashville and um, Davidson County. Um, I want to get into our last um, last question. Um, you were just reelected. Um, congratulations again. Bouquet of flowers going to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I should know this, but I'm not. How how long is the term? Is that four a four year four year term? Four year term. What does the next four years look like as you for you as a chief public defender in Nashville, Davidson County? That's a great question. Um, you know, the first four, I would say I spent a lot of time trying to find what my voice was going to be. And then unfortunately, pandemic hit that I couldn't have predicted. I really think the next four years for me, really, um, we see me being way more outspoken about issues, mm-hmm. um, really pressing people that are in leadership to do the things that I think will make our legal system a better system really encouraging community-based organizations to do court watch and to elevate their voices around the issues. Um, I would really like for our office, I I think right now we are the best defense organization in the South, but I really want to see us move into that era where we are really competitive with our recruiting, that we are advocating for resources that will help us bring the best folks who want to do this work into our office. Um, I think my biggest fight will be related to wealth-based detention and bail, but that will be the fight of, of, of my life, so to speak. Fight of term. fights. <laughs> the fight of fights with folks. And I'll keep on talking about how the disparities in this system affect black and brown people in Nashville. And I think particularly under the landscape of we see this wealth gap got widening. I mean, mm-hmm. we see it. Nashville is what the it city for businesses to move in. Mm-hmm. Houses are are exponentially more expensive than they used to be. So having those conversations about who we want to be um, in Nashville is going to be my fight this year. I know the mayor's race is right around the corner. I want to talk with our mayoral candidates about what their approaches are to people experiencing homelessness and what their approaches are to the criminal legal system. And so really making sure that I am elevating my voice in the forefront of places where it should be is of utmost importance, but also internally at my home at the public defender's office, making sure we are the best that we can be and providing that that excellent representation to our clients. Martisha, this is this is great. Um, I always give all of the guests at the end, you know, the last word. If we didn't touch on something um, that you want to uh, dive in deeper in, or just like re re remind people, like this is like make a point on something. And so I want to give you that time and space. I don't know if you need it after that <laughs> after that uh, uh, amazing soliloquy you just gave us. Um, but I still want to give you that, that opportunity if you want to hit it on anything else before we close out. I appreciate it. I would just say that, you know, the work of the public defender is not just housed in the walls of the public defender's office. I think that it, if all of us embody a little bit of the public defender spirit in whatever walk of life that we have, then we will truly make our world a better place. If we commit ourselves to seeing humanity in all people, to respecting folks regardless of their socioeconomic background, and to fight to end the injustices that exist in this world, then our world will be a better place. So I always ask people when I leave, before I leave anywhere, to commit to being a public defender in their space. Martisha, I appreciate you. Martisha is the chief public defender of Davidson County, Nashville. 
Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you thank for your you. availability. Yeah. Um, this is fun. No, nah, I'm glad you had. I had a good time. You, you a master class, <laughs> master class. And over your next, you know, four years, definitely want to have you back to keep us educated, um, to let us know what is happening, what community can do, but also, you know, just 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 being a person that gives us information so we can just be aware. Absolutely. Because um, I think many people are just not aware unless you just come in contact with. You know the criminal legal system on a regular basis, which I don't advocate anybody to do. Let's not do that. Yeah, let's not do that. You know, <laughs> but however, it's always good to know somebody. That's true. <laughs> and so, um, I want to do whatever I can do to make sure Nashville knows you and knows what is happening at the public defender's office, and also know that our public defender's office is doing an amazing job, like so many other people that have came on here and said so. So, thank you for the, all the amazing work that you and your amazing team, staff. Everybody does there at the Public Defender's Office. Shout out to the Nashville Defenders. Shout out to them. Um, Until next time, thank you, Martisha. Thank you.